0: Hello and welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is David Levy and on today's episode we're talking about a bunch of shows we've seen recently. So sit back and enjoy the show. I mean, I think we have a very eclectic mix of things we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about these.
0: Um, before we dive into deep, we should introduce ourselves. Oh
1: Yeah. Who are this you? Is, this is me. I'm Liz from Fuck Yeah Great Plays.
0: And this is David from Fuck Yeah Stephen Sondheim.
1: So this is an all it, fuck yeah episode. This is a fuck yeah podcast, which is
0: appropriate because later on we're going to be talking about stupid fucking birds. That's right.
1: But Good. first, but first, um, I guess I'll yeah I'll take it. Uh, I'll kick it off with uh, the effect over at Barrow Street. So the effect is uh, Lucy Preble a play that came over here from London. It actually won best new play um, in the UK a couple years ago. And they brought the production over from the National Theater. David Cromer's directing it. Um, And it's about um, a guy and a girl named... What are their names? Um, Connie and Tristan. I just
0: love that Liz is staring at her phone trying to find this information while she has the playbill playbill literally in her hand. On
1: my other hand. (laughs) I'm a multitasker. Which is to say I have all the information and I'm not using any of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Connie and Tristan... Um, have a sort of meet cute while they're undergoing a clinical drug trial, uh, experiment and they're taking this sort of new experimental super antidepressant and then they f- meet and fall in love. But what's, what's real love and what's chemically induced, uh, manifestations of side effects of love. And that's the play. Huh?
0: So it's a thinker.
1: Yeah, it has you know, it has some really good twists and turns. I mean, the, there was a twist early on. I went, oh, yeah, I thought that was the case. But then there are a couple more later on in the second act that I thought were really effective. Um,
0: At the risk of spoiling anything, and you can tell me if it's a spoiler, are they both lesbians before they start taking the drug?
1: Oh, it's a guy and a girl. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Connie and Tristan, that's fair.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Are either of them lesbians before this? If the, the, they... <laughs> the spoiler is that one of them becomes a lesbian, then, I mean, that would be great, but that is not the twist. Oh,
0: my goodness. I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so there there's a subplot, and this is actually why it was in the, the part that I did not care for about this show. There's a subplot with a nurse, uh, or she's a, uh, like a lab tech, who is brought into the investigation by the guy who's heading the drug study because he brings her on, and then we find out, this is not a spoiler, that they had a sort of affair at a medical conference years ago, and that's why he's brought her back on board on this. Mm. So that sort of becomes a B-plot to this show in a way that I didn't feel was necessary. I would have... I mean, there's something really interesting about, you know, if you're feeling all the side effects of love, if you're, you're getting anxious, and your palms are sweaty, and you're nervous, and you're talking a lot, and you're feeling... Is that the same as feeling love for someone or can you can you mistake can your heart mistake what your head is doing you know and and how
0: and do you think that does the play come down one way or the other
1: um, I don't know it's hard to say um I, I think it provides a really nice contrast and it gives these characters high kind of interest and room to explore those feelings and really discuss them in a in an interesting way, I will say uh, David Cromer's direction in this, as, as always, is awesome. He has some really great effects. They use uh, they have some really great um, video and camera work as well um, with throughout the show. Just some really neat uh, tricks of staging because it is, I mean, a lot of it is about what your brain perceives as true versus what your heart's perceiving as true and what you're hearing and what you're seeing and how do those sometimes not 100% align. So how do you justify them? As
0: though feelings aren't also from the brain.
1: Well, you, I mean, you know yeah. what I mean? Like We're the, talking the, the intellectual versus the emotional. Right. That's probably a better way to put it. Um, the way that the, the, those two pieces might be separate and try and come together. Um, so that, when it hits those moments, I think it's a very interesting show. Uh, when it starts to get a little bit more about um, the doctors and their previous relationship, which I guess is supposed to provide this contrast of like, Finding love versus losing love, but it it doesn't um, stick, I mm-hmm. think as well. Um, it's also the play's a bit long, though I saw it in previews, and I understand that while they were in previews, they were adding and removing scenes all the time, so I'm not really sure where the show is now, huh um, and I understand that they also cut it down from the London version and it got reworked, they worked some of the the technical medical details for an American audience. Um, so I don't think it's the same play that was in the UK. Um,
0: How does this fit into like the bigger picture of science plays that we seem to touch on every once in a while? You know,
1: I don't, I don't see a lot of science plays. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, did
0: this feel like maybe I don't yeah. know if that's like a fair no, 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 distinction, no, but, but did this feel like one of the science plays? Well,
1: I feel like I've seen more uh, philosophical science plays recently. You know, we saw you are nowhere. You are now here. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of, of
0: that one. But that's like kind right, of sciency yeah.
1: and then I'm going to talk about Andromeda which is also um sort of science-ish. It's Andromeda uh, is a constellation. So huh. yeah. Um
0: I thought it was a pokemon. <laughs> Not <laughs> gotta, really.
1: <laughs> Got to catch them all. But you know it's it's a nice it's a nice balance of head and heart. Um there's science in it but it wasn't a, it wasn't so much that went over my head. Mhm. But it also, so it felt very accessibly scientific. Sure. Maybe it's because I have heard more in the news about experimental drug trials and what has to happen for a medication to be approved. And I sort of know the basics of how that works.
0: Well, I also feel like the best of the science plays are are plays that really delve into the questions of ethics or science and society more so than like. The actual science itself. Yeah,
1: and I mean, and I think this this uses the science of love as a jumping off point for not just ethics, but you know, emotional connections in this sort of age. Hmm. Um. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I, I'm glad that I saw it. I think it's worth seeing. Um, I, I'm really curious, honestly, what what they may have cut or added. Since I saw it. Because, again, I saw it in previews and it's running through, I think, end of June. So it, it's it's solidified. It just opened uh, maybe a week or so ago. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. I'm going to be very interested. Lucy Preble, I think her dialogue is really cool also. Um, and I would be very interested to see more of her work. And I like the idea that we brought this great British hit overseas, over here, overseas. <laughs> And um, we'd love if we could do some more of that with their contemporary work, not just their, like, RSC productions.
0: Did David Cromer also direct it in England?
1: I don't think so. Hmm. I I believe the director was replaced by David Cromer early on in the, like, process at at Barrow Street. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. But I don't even know if the original person was the one who came over from from the UK. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Um, So... The show that I want to talk about next, I also saw during previews, although I'm pretty sure it was late previews because I recognized some critics in the audience.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
0: uh, um, and it is Exit Strategy, which is primary stages offering now at the Cherry Lane. Oh, cool. Which is a play by Ike Holter, who you may remember from Hit the Wall, which played at Barrow Street a couple years ago.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Um, he's a Chicago-based playwright, mm-hmm. although this production is actually a co-production from Philadelphia Theater Company. And a friend of mine in Philly was like, "Oh, you've seen Exit Strategy? I loved it when it was here." So that's sort of what put it on the map.
1: So is is this a production that came over from Philadelphia, or yes. is it a new, okay? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and, and many of the actors are Philadelphia actors. Okay. Um, and and I believe it's like the same production. It's the same
1: production. Cool. Yep.
0: And uh, so it's interesting. This is um, this is a play that, in many ways reminded me of Skeleton Crew, which listeners know I really loved. And sometimes when you have plays that you see back-to-back that are superficially similar to each other, it doesn't do the second one any favors. So I think this is actually maybe a a slightly better play than I'm going to make it sound like. If you'll indulge me. So, like Skeleton Crew, this deals with uh, workers in a Midwestern city whose livelihood is about to be shut down. Um, But it is based on real circumstances and it deals with a bunch of teachers at a high school who in the first scene get the news that the school is going to be shut down and probably demolished by the city at the end of the school year. And the rest of the play deals with the fallout from that. I don't think it's a spoiler, but if you want to go in totally untouched, don't listen to what I'm about to say. (laughs) At the end of the first scene, one of the teachers who is a many, many year veteran of the school system Kills herself uh, offstage, but in earshot mm-hmm. uh, after getting the the news. And so, exit strategy. The title is, um, you know, about both how how this uh, the city is trying to get out of this failing school system, but also mm-hmm. what what strategies all these teachers, in one case, one of the students, take in dealing with this. Um, what really feels like a betrayal by the city to to save the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really an ensemble show. Although if there's a star, it's Ryan Spahn, uh, who you might remember from another, someone kills themselves show. He was in Gloria last I year. I was just
1: going to ask. <laughs> yes. Okay.
0: Uh, and he oh, plays. Oh man, what a
1: bum deal. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but he's great. He plays the, a vice principal who's like a young nerdy white guy who's clearly in over his head at this mm-hmm. school that serves a primarily black and Latino population with primarily black and Latino teachers who are you know, many of whom have been there longer and have more experience and also are more connected to the community than he is. Um, what I like about this play is that it, it really doesn't take sides. And even like, so in skeleton crew, I think it was possible. I mean, if you remember our episode where um, Oren really argued that the plant form in came off to him as being a villain. I think it's really hard to watch exit strategy and say that anyone is a villain or a hero. Um, It's all people who are really kind of screwed over. I mean, certainly Ryan Spahn's character, the vice principal is the one who's the most culpable for not having done more to save the school, but it's pretty clear that also there wasn't much he could do. I don't know. Oren saw the show tweet at us. Maybe you felt differently, (laughs) Um, but, but seeing the different ways in which the teachers band together or fight against each other when they have different strategies for what they think should happen. Uh, plays out as real human drama against uh, sort of a big societal question. Uh, and I thought it was really engaging. Uh, you know, uh, the reason that I say I don't think I'm going to come across as enthusiastic as some other people who saw the show might is because I think that Skeleton Crew engages with a lot of the same questions at a, just a, a higher level. Um, Skeleton Crew to me felt like it could win the Pulitzer next year and Exit Strategy felt like a great thought-provoking play that you're going to discuss over drinks after the show and then move on with your life. Um,
1: so if I – because I didn't see uh, Skeleton Crew. You should when it comes I back. I know, I know. It's on my list right now. But do you think it's worthwhile to see Exit Strategy totally, if I haven't seen totally. it? First okay. of all,
0: I think Ike Holder is an important young playwright. Mm-hmm. He, uh, I don't know if he's had more than the two shows in New York. Uh, like I said, he's based in Chicago. Um, but he, I just think he, he's got a, an interesting voice, interesting things to say, uh, someone that, that you want to get in on the ground floor with, because I think we're going to hear more better, greater things from him as the years continue. It's an incredible cast besides Ryan Spahn. I thought, uh, Dieter Madigan as the teacher who kills herself was really great. Um, but really, the whole cast was just...
1: Now, did you say... I'm sorry. Yep. When you were talking about the cast earlier, is it all teachers or do you see the students as well? You see a student. A student. Okay.
0: A student who um, sort of gets enlisted in the the fight to keep the school open.
1: Got it. Got it. But it's mostly the, the teacher workplace. It's, it's mostly
0: the teachers. And if there's one drawback for this play, it's that because it is a play, because it's an off-Broadway play, you can only see so many actors on stage right, at one time. Yes. And it's a little weird that... You feel the absence of the, of the rest of the faculty and the rest of the student body in ways that, if this property were be adapted as a film, I think it could be made stronger just because you could get a, a better sense of the scope and of the 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 factions and how many people are on which side and all yeah, that. Yeah, because
1: it, it does seem strange to me—not that it's, it's a bad thing, but it does seem strange to have a play that deals with the plight of a school that, that's having all these issues and not include the students voices
0: well and that's that's part of the arguments the teachers make as mm-hmm. to who's who are they doing this for and and if they're not doing it for the students are you know are they why are they bothering and 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 oh, okay. some of the accusations back and forth are about who actually has the students best interests in mind oh okay um so yeah i mean i, I i'm glad i went it's this is a i think like a 90 minute no intermission type of show
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh I thought, look, you know, if it's not one of my favorite things I've seen this year, it's definitely something I'm glad I saw.
1: Okay. So let's move on to my greatly anticipated stupid fucking bird. Um, It's at the Pearl, which I think that's a really smart move on the Pearl's part. Yeah. For, do- for
0: listeners who don't know the Pearl, their usual mode of presentation is to do classics. They do
1: classics and adaptations of classics, but adaptations being maybe a new translation of something. Right. Um, So Stupid Fucking Bird is a departure of sorts for them. A little a little younger, a little hipper. It is quote-unquote sort of adapted from Chekhov's The Seagull by Aaron Posner. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Posner, Posner. I'm sorry, Aaron. Um, that, so it, it's a sort of adaptation of the seagull with a lot more f-bombs with a lot more self-awareness um a lot of meditation on the state of theater as a whole right now it's it's a very modernized take um that's yeah it's partially an adaptation and partially partially a critique of the theatrical world that creates something like this
0: and it's it's really interesting this First of all, this is a play that's been done in almost every other yeah, city before it, it's, it came here.
1: it's been everywhere. I feel like in the last two years, it's been everywhere but here.
0: Right, and and I actually saw a reading of it that The Pearl did last year in mm-hmm. anticipation of this and loved it. Um, but what's really fascinating is that between that reading and now, I feel like we've seen a, a glut of seagull adaptations hit the city. I know, I was just telling
1: someone, I was like, I can't believe that I've seen two... Seagull adaptations, because I saw Songbird Me too. back in December. And then there was
0: also the one at Abrams this month, yeah. which I did not see, but it I was an Irish theater company's uh, experimental take on the Seagull also.
1: Yeah, I feel like we're, we're going to get a glut of Chekhov right now.
0: Well, there's also a film version of the Seagull is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say Stephen Karam wrote the screenplay. Yeah, the Stephen
1: Karam one, which, no, or no, is that Cherry Orchard?
0: Uh, no, he wrote the the Broadway the version of Cherry Orchard is coming, coming to Broadway. Stephen. Broadway, is what he wrote. He yeah. also that's wrote the Seagull film okay. that I want to say has Emma Thompson in it.
1: Oh, okay. No, I'm confused. Then I don't know. Anyway, we're getting a lot of Chekhov right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I so I, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those rare theater kids who really hadn't been exposed to Chekhov mm-hmm. in in part because I never had like a real like capital T theater education. Uh, And I started noticing over the last few years that almost every interview I read with any writer I loved, they talk about how Chekhov was, like, the height of theater for them. I was like, oh, there must be something to this Chekhov guy. I should check him out. (laughs) Uh, And and so I I have been slowly but surely working my way through the Chekhov canon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so – on the one hand, I mean, this Cherry Orchard, this coming, it's like the 13th I'm so Broadway seeing, revival or something.
1: I'm so tired of seeing Cherry Orchard. But I've I'm never an, seen it, so I'm kind of well, psyched. have a great time. Yeah. I'll um, talk to you later. <laughs> you know, we just
0: had Uncle Vanya in Russian at BAM. Yeah. Uh, we also had Uncle Vanya as an ongoing workshop at CSC. Uh, you know, it, you, I, I'm not sure that there's a week that goes by in New York City when someone isn't doing some kind oh, of God. check-off. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think... The seagull in any of its forms makes it pretty clear why.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because the seagull actually was the first Chekhov I ever read when I was, like, 15. Um, and I hated it. Huh. I was like, it's so dense, and I just I can't get into it. And I was very – I kind of pushed Chekhov off for a a long time. When I was in college, I just didn't want to read it. I also – my directing project, I had to do Three Sisters translated by David Mamet. If that just – yeah, it was awful. So like that really put me off Chekhov for a while. And then within the last five years, I've I've gone to more performances of it. And I think it's clicking with me in a way that it just didn't when I was that age. And The Seagull now speaks more to me, I think, than – it did when I was in high school. Which
0: is funny because the seagull to me feels like the most likely to speak to an adolescent. Because yeah. It's...
1: I mean, I know that's why we read it when I was right. a kid. Is it's, it, I think it's the most accessible. And it's check-off. just so full
0: of that, like, the angst of a young artist.
1: Yeah, that, that youthful exuberance and, and angst and love and, like, you know, all the emotions run so high and so low. Right. Over and over um, so all that said, I was very excited to see this and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Me too. Oh, good. <laughs> the way we were talking to off mic, I was like, oh my God, David hated Stupid no, Fucking Bird. No, no, I loved okay. it. Okay. Um, so for people who, cause you didn't see Big Love, right? I did
0: not. S-
1: Stupid Fucking Bird is very similar to, to Chuck Me and to Big Love. Huh. me in that they're you know they take an idea they spin it out they tear it apart they put it back together they have a dance break they have a music break someone breaks the fourth wall we drop in some modern references and away we go and that's what i loved about big love that sort of frantic energy and it's it's in this show too and i just you know they're all over they're in the house they're climbing up over walls and you know, going in and out just everywhere. It's just, it, the show can't be contained by the space that they've set up for themselves, like in a positive way.
0: Yeah, I love the use of space. I love, mm-hmm. um, especially, and what's interesting is because I'd previously seen it as a reading where it's literally just people in a circle of chairs, mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared for how kinetic the show is. Yeah. And there's a lot of motion, a lot of energy that I think really serves it well um, because it's, at its heart, it's about ideas bouncing off each other. And so seeing these characters kind of bounce off each other yes. in that way really worked for me um and uh we i think we need to talk about this cast right
1: yeah so this cast i don't know about you i had i don't think i'd seen any of them except for one i'd seen um oh i feel like
0: dan daly's been around
1: yeah that's that's who i'd seen i'd see dan daly or no sorry not dan daly i'd seen um eric lockfield who played the the uh trigorin oh interesting um i'd seen him he was in tomorrow the river
0: Oh, okay.
1: But all of all the people here have done a ton of shows at the Pearl. If you've ever been to a show at the Pearl, you've probably seen them. I took a friend of mine who used to work there and she knew everybody in the cast and had seen them four huh. or five times. So they all seem to kick around there, but they are great. Um I would say Joe Joe Pollock as dev was one of my favorites. He was great. Um, I mean, I, listen,
0: I thought they were all great. They're so. all they're all
1: great. It, uh, I, I
0: particularly love Joey Parsons' as mosh.
1: Yes, yes. Uh,
0: who just has like, like a, a dry wit that could so easily slip into sort of uh, the parody of sarcasm, yeah. but Masha,
1: doesn't Masha, I feel like in, in any adaptation of the Seagull that I've seen, which is now is a few. Yeah. Masha's always the one that's easy to make the one note mopey goth girl. And here she has wonderful depth. And the show swings back and forth. I mean, we were talking about the, the manic highs and lows. It goes back and forth so fast that it just punches you in the gut. I mean, there's this moment where Mosh is talking and she's putting on this big tough clock and then she just bursts into tears. Mm. And I just like my, my heart went out to her. I did I it was so early in the play and I was just like, I I get it. I get this girl so much. <laughs> I loved it. Um but yeah, I mean what a great and The first act, I would say, covers the seagull loosely. Like, if you're looking for a modernized take on the seagull, they kind of covered in the first act. You know, Conrad is writing this musical for his girlfriend, Nina, and the mom starts heckling, and he runs away. And I mean, it covers the whole first act. Spoiler, he shoots himself um, at the end of the first act. But if you've seen the seagull, you know, that's the end of the play. And the lights came up, and I was like, where the hell do we go from here?
0: And yet, the, it, the second act does not in any way feel tacked on.
1: No. I was like, oh, God, are we going to see, like, after the seagull? But it doesn't. It, it spins those moments out a little more and builds the connections between people. And I, I don't know. I just think it does some really, really beautiful things with the themes of creation and art and love and what happens when you fall in love and how do you make love happen. Which you can't really.
0: Oh, I see a theme. I know, I know. <laughs>
1: I didn't mean to, but that's what we're doing. Yeah, I, th- I think it was a. Fa- I think it was a fabulous play.
0: Yeah, no, definitely glad I saw it. Mm-hmm. And What's really interesting for me is I don't know if you've seen any other Aaron Posner plays. He's...
1: No, he's got like, he's done I think two shows in New York, and neither of which I'd seen. And it,
0: he's primarily known for doing adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, he did two Chaim Potok adaptations. He did,
1: That's Uh, it. He did I Am Asher Liv. Yeah, and uh, and I think he also
0: did the – did he do The Chosen? Yeah. Uh, So I saw Asher Liv, not the New York production. I saw the Boston production. And, like, it was fine, but it was very by the book, so I wasn't prepared. Like, I had a hard time in my head realizing that it's the same playwright who did such, like, a a respectful, traditional adaptation of the one and Mm -hmm. such, like, a freewheeling and exciting and different adaptation of this one.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: So – um you know hurry for range
1: yeah i mean this to me this is right up there with you know a, a like i said the chuck me but also a little bit like the rude mechs i don't know did you see stop hitting yourself no <laughs> see i have no one to make these references to um but it's a little like the rude mechanicals where the wall drops and we're going to talk to the audience and have a whole conversation uh and then get back into the show yeah
0: yeah
1: which was great i don't know was your audience pretty inter- there, there are some interactive bits yeah audience my, my cool?
0: audience was pretty with yeah. it yeah um there were even points where i think maybe they were more interactive than intended
1: ah that um, happened
0: uh not nothing in particular i just feel like um people really like once they realized that there were moments when they mm-hmm. could talk back they they really enjoyed and they it. Went and, with it right
1: yeah that's cool yeah yeah i mean so hey pearl keep doing stuff like this this is a lot of fun yeah like, i would love to see them go more in this direction yeah, I mean... Taking the, the phrase adaptation, or the word adaptation, I'm using it a little looser. Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: Um, and, you know, they're this is only their second year under their new leadership, right? Yeah. So this very well could be yeah. a new direction. And yeah. we're all for it. Absolutely. So we also saw another adaptation of a classic text.
1: I know, how funny. Uh,
0: which was Moby Alpha, which is written and performed by Chuck Armstrong and Charlie Stockman who are collectively known as Charles comedy, um, which is at the pit, um, having been at the pit loft, at the pit loft, right. Which is on the the other side of town from the pit. Um, and, uh, takes the story of Moby Dick and puts it in outer space. Yes. Uh, and let me tell you, as someone who has never read Moby Dick, who's never neither. seen so you're Moby Dick,
1: not the most qualified to review this show. No, but
0: I, but I want to say that like that mm-hmm. did not diminish my ability to enjoy the show. Yeah. Um. I mean, maybe I would have had a totally different experience if I had a, a deep and abiding love for Moby Dick. Yeah. But my knowledge of Moby Dick is like a pop culture knowledge of Moby right. Dick. Whale. Plus, one of my friends on Tumblr has been reading it and blogging about it a little bit, so I <laughs> feel like I picked up a bit, absorbing it that secondhand. way. secondhand. I think I have the CD of one of the Moby Dick musicals. <laughs> um, anyway, what uh, so this was interesting in a couple of ways. So it, it is Moby Dick in space. It is two actors who um, each portray a number of characters. And it is performed entirely in the dark. They are illuminated by LED lights built into their spaceman helmets that change color both depending on which characters they're playing and also... Uh, like where they are. Right, the and for effects and, and things yeah. like that. Um, and but there's like
1: no props there's no it, it's really just this yeah, a handful of props. yeah like a couple of chairs and a yeah. balloon right. right
0: yeah and a water bottle
1: yeah oh that's right in the water bottle <laughs> how can I forget
0: um, and in addition to Moby Dick there are also uh, a handful of more than references uh, crossover moments with mm-hmm. sort of great Homage. moments in science fiction yeah. uh, so you get a uh, a taste of 2001 and you get a taste of alien and Star Trek. Yep.
1: Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Alien. Uh, Hal from, from the 2001. I don't know.
0: Yeah. So, that, you know, in, in ways that, that we not a little gimmicky, but, but we're, but we're, we're relevant to the story and sort of, were an interesting way to um, underline the way that stories of exploration may have changed location in the last couple hundred years but there is sort of a through line in the way that we approach adventure Mm -hmm. stories and stories of exploration and also the ways that we use literature as metaphor to make meaning yeah i'm making a lot of hand gestures while i'm talking podcast audience
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure it'll come across
0: liz what do you think about the show
1: you know I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you did. Um, I also have no familiarity with Moby Dick, really, besides the, the pop culture way. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate the effects and the the effort and the the way they built this world. I think, like, they're clearly having a lot of fun, and there's a lot of science fiction nuggets in there. And, of course, the, the use of the helmets, I think, is a great little trick it's a nice framing device but at some point it all felt very flat to me and i'm not sure if i wanted there to be more more done with the effects that they were using or if i wanted the world to be built a little bit more like a little more fleshed out i didn't need it to be more realistic i think i just needed a little more shape to it like something okay something that i liked about stupid fucking bird Mm -hmm. is that you know very early on what the world is and then they push those boundaries and screw with them and, you know, flip everything around. Moby Alpha creates those boundaries. It creates the world with the helmets and the way they change colors and we know who who's what. And it kind of pushes their world, but I feel like it never really broke past that initial idea of the only two lights we've got are the lights on our faces and they change based on what we're doing.
0: Well, I, I wonder if that's just that the concept of the lights is oversold a little bit that the the play isn't about the light like in the way that right um,
1: I guess I just wanted more more world building than special effects okay that's fair Does that makes sense yeah I, 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 I
0: think I relied on a lot of science fiction tropes to have yeah. the world built for it so like it makes these Star Trek references so that it doesn't have to build a world
1: right and you know I was just having this conversation this morning actually that I feel like I'm seeing a lot of shows right now that are unauthorized parody, unauthorized takeoff of XYZ. I mean, and, and for better or for worse, you know, we saw Hold On To Your Butts, we saw Puffs, um, the forthcoming Fly You Fools, which is about Lord of the Rings, Moby Alpha. Um, you know, I feel like Nymph always has a few of them. Sure. Fringe has them. Where... I understand the draw of those. You take something that's really, it's really beloved touchstone and has maybe a built-in audience as well. And you're going to bring it to the stage in a new and interesting way, which I think is great. Um, And sometimes some are more successful than others. Mm -hmm. But when you start with something like that, or, you know, like with Moby Alpha pulling in all these science fiction references, that's already written for you. You know, like, half your work is done because the the baseline is there and it's your job to play with that and mold it into something new as opposed to just say, hey, remember this thing? So,
0: so I guess what, what I took away from it that maybe didn't work for you was that, to me, it was drawing this line of connection between the ways in which literature from Days Gone By used the use the language of exploration as a metaphor um, to the ways that science fiction today uses a different language also of exploration also as metaphor and whether, and trying to explore whether or not those metaphors are, are are still relevant. Um,
1: And and I hadn't thought about it that way. So I can see that's a good point. um,
0: Yeah. But look, I also want to say the show is 10 PM on a, was it on a weeknight? Um, oh
1: yeah, it was on Thursday. We saw it on Thursday, right. right?
0: So like, oh my goodness, ten o'clock at night on a Thursday is not oh. ideal theater going time for yeah. either of us. Yeah, <laughs> um, which made it a little hard. I mean,
1: I, I bet actually, I bet on a Saturday night the show is like the energy. I'm the sure energy, is different. I'm sure, is much uh, bigger than what we've got. Um, no, but I, I, I enjoyed it. and I enjoyed what they were doing. I think maybe I'm a little burnt out on these. Yeah, all those adaptations. Fun- it's
0: funny because this did not feel, I would not have put this in the same category as all those shows that you mentioned because mm-hmm. it didn't feel as, it didn't feel like parody to me in the way that like, um, hold on to your butts is, mm-hmm. is or the way that Puffs is. Yeah. Although I think parody is maybe also not the right word for Puffs. But, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but, but I know what you mean. That like
1: homage that's sort right, of inspired right. by.
0: Um, and I guess maybe because I came into this more thinking of it as a Moby Dick story and less as an homage to science fiction like the science fiction stuff sort of caught me off guard which is funny because before the show I was talking to Peter Michael Marino friend of the podcast also producer of the show and he was like oh I didn't realize that you were a geek like this and I was like well first of all I'm super geek, but I also like didn't know what the what the like this was when he said yeah. that I was like I was an English major I like literature
1: yeah no I was I was expecting more of the Moby Dick to be honest than, right. the, than the science fiction that we got
0: but you know what like when I was but in the was fourth great. grade I also wrote a research paper about Star Trek so like I, I I am actually the core audience for this show <laughs> um so that's Moby Alpha still has a a few more performances announced at the pit um, and. Uh, if you are someone listening to us from elsewhere, uh, Charles Comedy is based in Los Angeles, and they have a new show starting in May, and you can find out about that on their website, which we will link to.
1: Yeah. Next, we got Antlia Pneumatica, which means air pump. Did you know that? I found that out. It means what? Air pump. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a fancy word for air pump. Uh, it's a new Anne Washburn that's over at Playwrights Horizons for a couple more weeks. Uh, it's about a group of friends who meet up at uh, one of the girls, one of the women's uh, father's ranch house in the middle of Texas uh, because their friend Sean has passed away, um, but he was sort of their college friend. And he, I guess, wrote out that when he died, he wanted everyone to come together for his funeral, but he hadn't updated it in a while. And so these people have sort of gone their own way and are now gathering because Sean asked them to and everyone sort of feels like a little bit of loyalty to a dead guy. And uh what well, I mean that's kind of what it that's kind sure, of how sure. they feel about it. Um to gather at uh their this ranch house in the middle of nowhere to s- spread his ashes. Um so you Sounds know So uplifting. I know. <laughs> it's you know it's it's a lot about uh, space and Time,
0: Space, like outer space? Outer
1: space. There's some outer space. There's some, uh, yeah, time as an illusion. Uh, I I think I told you I saw this the same weekend that I saw You Are Nowhere, You Are Now Here. And uh, we left the theater and I grabbed my boyfriend and I said, hey, you know we're going to die someday? (laughs) Which is, let me tell you, super romantic. (gasps) Guys love it. I
0: just got to say, like... (laughs) After theater growing month like we've had, it makes you long for good old-fashioned Thanksgiving play. Yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I was just like, "Wow! Every minute I'm here, I'm I'm hurtling towards my death." Cool. Um, so you know, I mean, if you're in for that, um, but you know, it's Anne Washburn. You know, ten out of twelve, Mister Burns, uh, the internationalist. You know that it's going to sort of mix realism and fantastical elements. The um, sort of pushing against those two. I. I enjoyed this play. I like where. Okay, so I've seen a couple Anne Washburn plays now. I've seen Aunt, I've seen Mr. Burns ten out of twelve. Uh, she did Ephignia in Aulis, which I can never. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Sorry. Um, which was her? Which is an adaptation. And this, and with Ephignia and and this, I can see where she's going in her career, merging these two disparate worlds. I don't know if this is as successful as Mr. Burns or 10 out of 12, merging the fantastical and the mundane. Uh, But I think it had some really interesting things to say. Um, And there's some beautifully directed sequences. It's in the the smaller space at uh, Playwrights where here was. Mm -hmm. Um, And they do a great job with that set and sort of making that space feel so vast. They also have a really great effect at the end of the first act, and I'm not going to spoil for people who go see it. Um, oh, yeah, so okay, so everyone's coming back together and um sort of reminiscing on what's happened in the last twenty years of their life there's some there's some mysteries about someone who said they're coming and then someone else's um that person's been dead, and then someone says, no, that person's had a real estate career for ten years, so there's a lot of trickery and is there some
0: multiverse shit going on here, yes, uh-
1: Yes, there's some multiverse shit going on.
0: I read comics. Yeah. I can so, sniff that out from a mile. <laughs> um, so, it,
1: so it does present some interesting things on how we remember our past versus how we are remembered. Um, and But I, I do want to say a couple of things about the cast. Um, one thing that I really love, and someone asked me about this on uh, Tumblr recently, and I'm going to address it, I promise you. But in the meantime... Um, you know, we talk about, about racial diversity and bringing that on stage and stuff. Uh, this play has two women, uh, what are their names? Uh, Nina and Liz, Annie Paris and April Mathis. And they play sisters, and one of them is black and one of them is white. And it's just a fact of the show. It's not commented on. We don't ever have to excuse it. That's just, it just is allowed to exist, which is great. I think audiences are fine with that. So like like, I say, did, was
0: there an intermission? Did you hear people grumbling there was about a, that? There was an
1: intermission, but like no one said. Anything. I mean, I didn't hear anything about oh, it. Good. So you know, it's just, just sort of a thing. It's not like oh, and she was adopted. Like we don't ever get that. It's just yeah, we were sisters. We grew up together. We used to do this. Like very basic, yep. uh, which was great. I thought that it was so, it was so nice to see that as a non-issue, and I appreciate more shows doing that. Um, <laughs> the show also has Rob Campbell as Adrian, who is. Uh, Nina's ex, who may or may not be dead, who may or may not be a drifter. We don't know where he came from. Um, but Rob Campbell keeps popping up in my life in shows. And I always forget who he is because I think cause his name is so generic.
0: Which is super awkward when he showed up at your birthday party. Yeah,
1: my God. It's so <laughs> weird. He just keeps showing up places. Uh, but I So I, I think it's because I forget his name because it's so common. And yeah. then, he sh- then he walks on stage like, oh, that guy. And he kind of reminds me of Christopher Walken. He's kind of huh. like an off-Broadway Christopher Walken. <laughs> Where he has sort
0: of—that's a pull quote.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like I don't not to disparage Rob Campbell here, but he has sort of a sort of an odd, striking face, and he always plays. He creepy. He's not creepy. He's just sort of like a strange, handsome man. He's someone that like he's sort of odd looking, but then he starts talking. He has so much charisma that you're like, oh, he's kind of attractive in like a weird way. He also has that that Christopher Walken sort of delivery. Ah. Uh. Um, and he sort of just plays, like, attractive lunkheads. And this is, I think, the fifth show that I've seen him in where he's played some variation of that a- attractive lunkhead. Gosh,
0: I wonder if I've ever seen him.
1: I bet if I showed you a picture, you'd know who I'm talking about. Huh. And he's just, I don't know. I just like seeing him on stage. Every time I see him, it's a surprise. <laughs> but, um, but I appreciate it. So he comes in and he, he really owns, you know, a good chunk of this show as this sort of mysterious ghost, not ghost, we're not really sure who he is type of guy. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, I think if you're if you're an Anne Washburn completist, which I am slowly becoming, uh, I think it's I think it's good to see. But if it doesn't, you know, don't don't feel bad if you miss it. And
0: it's nearing the end of its run, and yeah, there are I very few tickets left. So, yeah, if you do I, want to see it, get on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it closes on the twenty fourth or around then.
0: All right. I think our last show for the evening. Is I don't know why I said evening, it's not actually evening well, where <laughs> we are. Oh, no, we're
1: not even recording <laughs> a date <baby>. never <laughs> mind. I was but gonna give you an out. Oh well,
0: I just assume you're all listening to us in bed.
1: <laughs> I hope so. Uh,
0: so cuddle up with us <laughs> as uh, we talk about Palin Live, which is a cabaret show happening at the Laurie Beachman Theater, and it is uh, a show created, produced, written, and starring. Uh, Erica Vlahinas as Sarah Palin, with uh, Quirter Simmons as everyone else, the American public. (laughs) And uh, Cal Bernzell as her music director in the guise of Michael Feinstein.
1: Wow. Should I know, um, what was her name, the woman who's playing? So
0: Erica was in, uh, well, first of all, she was in Hot Pepper Theater Live. Oh, okay. So if you came to see us, uh, she was in that show. And she was in... Midnight Frolic, Ziegfeld's – she was in Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic, oh, if you yeah. saw that.
1: I, no, I didn't, but I meant to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Erica's an acquaintance, um, and she invited me to see this show in which she plays Sarah Palin. And the, the conceit of the show is that uh, for reasons which are not worth explaining on the podcast uh, – she has emerged as the Republican front runner in this year's presidential election opposite Hillary Clinton, and they have agreed that they will each perform a presidential cabaret uh, <laughs> on TV <laughs> for the American public as part of their Hillary campaign. we don't see Hillary
1: Clinton. We don't get to see Oh, we might. Oh, oh! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: Spoilers. Uh, I, I don't want to give too much away, but Quarter Simmons, as the American public, plays a number of roles.
1: Ah, okay. Um,
0: and uh, so, what's interesting about the show is that the it, it, all of the songs are broad Broadway, in one case, a Disney film song, uh, with lyrics rewritten to be about Sarah Palin, and a lot, a lot of the texts. In the show, are direct quotes from her, um, or they are, or the, the the text and the lyrics are adapted from things they've said. It's it's all based in truth, but as Erica says in the program, um, they don't fact check because neither would Sarah Palin. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting, and um, I, I thought it was I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was really funny. Where are they doing it? They're doing it at the Laurie Beachman, which okay. is um, at the West Bank Cafe mm-hmm. downstairs. And Erica, you would never know looking at her out out of costume, she looks just like Sarah Palin in costume. And Erica, who is like a tremendous belter in her regular singing, adopts Sarah's voice and comes up with a Sarah Palin singing voice, which is so spot on and so in character. Oh,
1: that's cool. Uh, And it really works.
0: Um, And, you know, it's funny for me. I actually liked the talking parts better than the singing parts because I think I am a little too protective of Broadway show tunes to hear parody versions and, like, just fully let myself go and <laughs> like the parodies for what they are. Um, so the people I went with who are less attached to the original version of the songs did not have that problem. Are we
1: talking, like, Forbidden Broadway level or?
0: I mean, they're very, very, very talented mm-hmm. writing. Yeah, it's not. It, it, this, is, this is not like your college acapella group doing a first draft kind of thing this is ah, like okay. this is very well crafted um, what I liked about the show too is that it starts off as, as very jokey very like very parody sort of low blows but as the show goes on it really it really dives into who is Sarah Palin as a human being and what makes her tick and how might we find some empathy for her? Which is never going to bring you around to her politics if you're not there already, and I imagine if you're partaking of cabaret in New York City, you're probably not. Maybe I don't know, um, but it does. It, you know, I think that it's hard to to play a character if you if you can't find the humanity in the character, and Erica does a really good job at finding that humanity, and and the show elevates itself from being just a very jokey parody sketch thing to being something. That's, I think, a little more meaningful and says some interesting things about who Sarah Palin is and and why why she is successful at speaking to such a great number of people. Um, And the fact that it can do that without ever really giving into her politics, without ever letting her off the hook for the stuff that she does, that is... Unforgivable, um, yeah. I think, is really to the credit of the team. Um, so, uh, it. I think the next show is tonight. If you're listening to this today, the, the podcast gets released, and they've got a few more performances throughout April. Uh, so, if this sounds like your kind of thing, you should definitely check it out. Fun. So it's a little bit of a short episode for us, but that's what we've got today.
1: Yeah, I think. Let's, I mean, we would covered a bunch of shows.
0: Do you have anything coming up?
1: Um, let's. See. See, uh, well, I was just saying, or I just realized today that I'm a little behind on the Broadway stuff that I want to go see. Um, stuff I've been talking about forever that I keep meaning to see and now I finally have some time. So, I'm going to try maybe go see like Color Purple or Human, the Humans, or, you know, a bunch of different things that I've been trying for. I, I hear She Loves Me is very good.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I have a, also have a wish list of Broadway shows yeah. to catch up with, but I'm only holding tickets to one of them and it's not until May. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. I,
1: I know I'm going to get tickets to Indian Summer soon. That's the next show at Playwrights. Um, I, oh, I'm. Uh, Lindsay and I are going to go see, you are now the owner of The Suitcase, which is Theater 167's a new project. It's a whole bunch of shorts written by a bunch of different playwrights in a bunch of different languages that all connect to each other. Huh. Which should be pretty cool. Um, and then, yeah, I'm not sure what else I've got coming up.
0: I'm actually traveling for two out of the next four weeks, so like you God knows it. I'm going to see anything. <laughs> Although, Rebecca Luker just joined the cast of Fun Home temporarily yeah. playing Helen while Jihoon has a hip replacement, so <laughs> I'm going to do my darndest to get back to I see her.
1: Yeah, I bet that'll
0: be good. Because um, it's been a few months since we've seen fun Home. Oh, it's yeah, time for a return. Pop
1: back in, yeah. All right. Well, there we go.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, guys. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Maximu Podcast. Remember to subscribe at iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what we're doing, please rate us and leave a review. Tell all your friends. We'd love to have them along. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Liz is at miss liz richards and i'm at it's d levy that's all for this week see you soon thanks
1: theatrical media